Okay, great. I'd, um, I'd like to welcome everybody to um, uh, today's uh, 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 public event um, on tackling Britain's social mobility problem. Uh, we're delighted to have, um, I'm, I should say who I am, I'm Steve Machen, uh, I'm a professor in the economics department here at LSE, and I'm director of the um, Centre for Economic Performance, uh, a research centre, uh, and one of the largest research centres um, in, in the UK, uh, it's ba based, based at LSE. Um, I'm delighted to have along, alongside me, to, in terms of what we're going to do today in this discussion about tackling Britain's social mobility problem, uh, Professor Lee Elliott Major, who's um, the uh, first professor of social mobility uh, in the UK. Uh, the uh, leading professor. <laughs> <laughs> so he's the best. He's also something that's actually the opposite end of the distribution. He's the best and the worst social mobility <laughs> professor, I think. Uh, he's a pr professor at um, the University of Exeter, and he's a visiting senior fellow at the LSE. I'm also delighted that we have Sanchia Berg here, uh, who's going to um, interview uh, Lee and myself. Uh, about uh, issues to do with um, social mobility uh, in Britain. Uh, Sanchi is an award-winning journalist. Uh, she's a multimedia reporter at the BBC Today programme. Uh, she's been covering various issues for the uh, last 20 years, more than 20 years, um, in terms of on-air reporter, correspondent, presenter for, British, for BBC News, uh, covering lots of breaking news issues as and when they happen, but also doing uh, various investigative journalism uh, exercises on a whole range of extremely interesting things, panorama programs, uh, presenting documentaries, uh, researching various issues to do with um, miscarriages of justice. Uh, very, very well suited, I think, for um, asking us uh, some tough questions today about, um, about social mobility, um, particularly in Britain, but also in a, in a wider context. Um, so, this, this today, today's event is, um, is part of the Economic and Social Research Council's Festival of Social Science, which is taking place this week. There's a whole range of events going on um, around the country. Uh, this, this one here uh, is, 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 is one of the several ones that are going on in London. There's, there's lots going on in other parts of the country uh, in all areas of social science uh, research. Uh, it would be very interesting if you're, if, you, if, you, if you're interested in these issues, looking at the ESRC's website about various other events um, that are really going on. Uh, if anybody wants to tweet uh, while we're going on, there's a, a hashtag LSE Social Mobility um, uh, and Twitter um, handle that you can, that you can tweet uh, various messages to. Okay, so the schedule of this event is going to be this. Um, I'm going to give a 10-minute or so introduction uh, where I'll present um, some material on uh, patterns of social mobility, uh, how they've changed over time, how Britain compares to other countries, uh, what the drivers of uh, social mobility at a point in time are, uh, and I'll also talk about um, what we might think about doing. If we perceive that Britain does have a social mobility problem, uh, what can we do about it? Uh, this is going to be a positive uh, talk, I hope, uh, where we're going to actually offer some uh, policy uh, prescriptions uh, uh, that are up for debate uh, after, we, after we've interviewed. So the second stage is we'll be interviewed for 25 minutes, half an hour, I guess, something in that, of that order of time uh, by Sanchia, who will ask me and Lee various questions about social mobility and uh, social justice and how economic and social policy uh, might link to those as well. Uh, then we'll have a Q&A session, so we'll throw things out to the floor. Uh, and uh, hopefully get some interesting questions and challenging questions that we can, we can answer. And at the end, we're going to have a vote. 
we're going to have a vote, which I'll give more detail in, in, a little bit later. Uh, we're going to identify four big areas that we think have potential uh, for affecting the level of social mobility, uh, and we're interested in what you as the audience think are the more interesting or more appropriate ones of those four that we'll put forward. Uh, more on that in a minute after I give the, uh, present the introductory material. Okay, so the backdrop uh, to what we're going to talk about here is the reason why uh, it's Lee and myself being interviewed is we wrote this Penguin book uh, last year called Social Mobility and Its Enemies, uh, which was published um, in September uh, 2018, and we're just after a year on from that, uh, and so we thought another, another kind of event uh, in the wake of uh, what, what's happened uh, subsequent to the book uh, would be a good thing uh, to think about, especially how we might think about um, tackling the enemies of social mobility. Uh, and the focus is going to be very much on that today. That's why the, the title is about Britain's social mobility problem and what can be done about it. Okay. So why do I say there's a problem? Uh, well, here's a chart which shows you a measure of uh, the extent of intergenerational mobility, uh, what's termed in the academic lecture the intergenerational elasticity. This, this is a measure which tells you how strongly your um, labour market earnings, your earnings in your job, are connected to your parents' earnings. So it's like an inverse measure of mobility. Uh, the bigger it is, uh, the more connected you, the more likely you are to earn a similar amount to your parents uh, than if it's less connected. Um, so you can see the highest levels of um, social mobility, of intergenerational mobility here, are in the Scandinavian countries, uh, where there's a much weaker correlation between children's earnings and parents' earnings. Uh, and up here, uh, the United States, uh, perhaps contrary to some people's beliefs or views about the American dream, uh, the American dream is actually not as existent as many people might think, for reasons I'll tell you in a moment. Uh, but American Britain are up here, and then there's intermediate countries, uh, France, Italy, Austria, Australia, Germany, and Canada. Um, this chart shows the intergenerational elasticity here, so an inverse measure of, of, of mobility. It's a measure of immobility. And it's plotted against the level of inequality in, in, in countries. The Gini coefficient is an index of inequality. How, how equal or unequal is the income distribution in the country? So you can basically see that the more equal countries, the Scandinavian countries, have, lower, uh, have higher levels of social mobility, lower levels of social immobility, and the more unequal countries, and this explains why the US is right out here, uh, it also explains partly why Britain is right out here, uh, uh, the more unequal countries have... Um, lower levels of social mobility. So in the International League table, uh, oh, I should say this was the, the name of this, the, the name uh, was coined by the, the late, Alan Kruger, late Alan Kruger, a very, very eminent uh, labour economist who worked on these things, uh, and he called this curve the Great Gatsby Curve, uh, in reflecting um, F. F. Scott Fitzgerald's book from the 1920s about the roaring 20s and the inequality of society in America uh, and the American dream. Uh, so basically you can see that countries that are, uh, have more inequality uh, have lower levels of social mobility. Uh, in, in the British context, the, it, it, it's also the case that actually the amount of mobility has got worse over time. Uh, this shows you, um, it's quite a complicated chart this, but it's very neat I think. This shows you this kind of U-shaped relationship uh, between um, children's, uh, well sons' um, earnings going from the poorest to the richest, the grey bar to the black bar. 
uh, and it shows, it shows these 20% splits, the quintiles, uh, from the lowest 20% to the next 20% up to the highest 20%, uh, by whether the uh, father uh, of, 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 of the same individuals uh, was also in the same quintile or not. And so you can see, basically, you see that people tend to get stuck at the bottom uh, and stuck at the top, and you see this kind of U-shaped relationship. Uh, if it was dead flat, uh, you would all stand at... It's split into five equal portions, so everybody would stand a 20% chance of getting out of that portion. You'd have a flat line at 20%, but you do not see that. You see this inverse U-shape. You actually see that mobility... Uh, for people who tend to be a bit more stuck at the top if they're from the highest um, income backgrounds... Uh, uh, than, than at the bottom. You can see it's a pretty low proportion climbing from the poorest quintile to, a, to the richest quintile. It's a pretty low proportion dropping from the uh, richest quintile to the poorest quintile. And what's more is this U-shape has become more pronounced over time. So this chart here shows, um, shows the extent of mobility for a birth cohort of everybody who was born in Britain um, in a week of March 1958, the National Child Development Study. There was a similar survey, a study that was carried out uh, 12 years later um, in 1970, the British cohort study, and you can see that the U-shape is more pronounced, and the, you can see that people are very much more likely to be stuck at the top and stuck at the bottom uh, if they were born in 1970 compared to 1958. Now, these two cohorts are actually pretty interesting. So if you think about when people will be leaving school and entering the labour market, the 1958 cohort... Uh, well, they'd be 23 in 1981, the early 1980s. Uh, these guys would be 23 uh, in, in, in 1993. Uh, so they're entering the market in the 1990s. The big period when earnings inequality rose in Britain was the 1980s. Uh, and so inequality ro ro it was much higher facing this cohort than this cohort. And, and you see a, more, uh, a, a, a reduction in mobility um, over time. Okay, so it was an episode where mobility fell. So mobility is low in Britain, but it also fell uh, in the period when inequality was rising. Uh, so this is, a, this, this, is a, this is a picture of relative mobility. Okay? This, is where you, this is whether you move up or down relative to other people. Another useful concept in terms of um, mobility would be absolute mobility. For example, whether you yourself earn more than your parents did at the same age. Okay. Now, until relatively recently, because wages have been growing, real wages have been growing uh, in Britain until the mid-2000s, uh, just before the, the global financial crisis. Uh, that's actually true, but because real wages were growing, or wages were growing faster than prices, uh, then actually it's true that many more people uh, were earning more than their parents would have been sort of 30 years before, if the average age when somebody has children is 30 years. Uh, this is what's happened to a measure that shows you this kind of thing. So this is the percentage of 30-year-olds of, of uh, who are earning more uh, than their parents were uh, when they themselves were 30. So you can see it was improved as wages were growing in real terms. It was improved. Since then, we've gone off a cliff. Um, so it peaked just before the financial crisis, here about 60%, um, and it's dropped to around about a third uh, here. So people was absolute maybe a chance for you... Uh, if you were in this cohort, are earning more than your parents in uh, the last year of the sample, 2017, is way lower than it was um, some 10, 15 years before, uh, when real wages were quite a lot higher than they are now. Okay, so I think this is based on relatively recent research. The vast majority of research on intergenerational mobility has looked at relative mobility. 
but now we're sort of facing a double whammy and so of, 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 of falling relative mobility and falling absolute mobility, which is not particularly good for people's living standards uh, as, they're, as they're progressing over time. So I think in the questioning, we probably will have some interesting discussions about, about uh, younger, younger people compared to older people uh, um, as well. Okay. So I said, I said a, moment, a moment ago that mobility is lower where inequality is higher. Um, it, if, if you kind of think about this um, in terms of uh, individual people's life cycles, their, 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 their different stages that they have in their lives, uh, there's two key aspects of inequality uh, that shape mobility at a particular point in time. There's stuff that happens before you get in the labor market uh, to do with education, and there's stuff that happens in the labor market when you're earning money from, from, from work or perhaps not earning money from work um, as well. And so it's actually true that as mobility's fallen over time, it's been driven by both increases in both of these um, factors, both educational inequality on the one hand and uh, income or earnings inequality um, on the other. So here's two charts showing you dimensions by which educational inequality has risen um, over time. Again, using that cohort data that I mentioned before. So this is in, this is what I was doing. This is in 1981. Uh, this, is, this, is, this shows you the percentage of 23-year-olds um, of in 1981 who uh, got a degree by the time they were aged 23. Uh, and it's broken down into three groups by family income, the poorest, 20%, the middle 60%, and the richest 20%. <coughs> uh, so you can see back here, you know, roughly 10, just about 10% of 23-year-olds uh, had a degree. Uh, but it's very unequally distributed, so it's about 20% for people from the richest 20% of families and very low for people from the poorest 20% of families. You can kind of track this through time. So this is then the 1970 cohort, aged 23 in 1993. And we've constructed measures from another comparable survey, uh, the British Household Panel Survey, in 2013, uh, when people were aged 23 as well. So one thing we know is that the proportion of people going to university went up massively over time. There was a really big expansion um, in, in the 1990s. And you can see uh, that by the fact the bars, um, all of them uh, are higher by 2013 for each of the three income groups. Um, but you can see the increase is much, much faster for people from the richest 20% of families. So basically, educational inequality has risen over time. Uh, about half of people from the uh, richest 20% of families um, got a degree by age 23. It's down to I don't know, 15% uh, from the bottom 20%. Um, what's more is that actually the... Wage, as, as inequality has risen over time, the ret wage returns to getting a degree have also gone up. The wage returns to getting higher educational qualifications have actually gone up. Um, this is what Lee uh, likes to talk about as the um, education arms race. The, the educational wage differentials have actually gone up um, massively over time. So it used to be that when you, if you've got A-levels rather, rather than not having A-levels, you used to get a big wage return. But that's actually flattened out um, over time. An undergraduate degree relative to A-levels uh, used to give you a, quite a big return, but it's flattened out a bit. Now what you need to be doing better than amongst college graduates is, is, is actually getting a postgraduate degree compared to an undergraduate degree. If you actually stop at the end of the undergraduate times, then you're not getting a bigger return than you would have done in the past. Okay, so both educational wage differentials going up and access to education to get by, in terms of getting a university degree 
uh, have become much more unequal over time. So that's one side of a coin. The other side of a coin is what's happened in the labor market when people have completed their education. And so this shows you a very commonly used measure of, um, of wage inequality in the labor market between 1980 and 2017. Um, so it's for 9010 uh, wage differential for full-time workers. Um, so basically, if you, if you took information on everybody in work uh, in, in, in the labor market and ranked them from the lowest to the highest, uh, you can obviously pick out different percentile points from that. So the 90th, percent, uh, the 90th uh, percentile is somebody who's 10% from the top. The 10th percentile is somebody who's 10% from the bottom of that distribution. So back in 1980, uh, somebody who was at the 90th percentile earned about 2.6, 2.7 times as much uh, as somebody who uh, is at the ten, was at the 10th percentile of the distribution. As I said a moment ago, this went up massively in the 80s. It's carried on rising since, but it's almost four times now compared to 2.6 or 2.7 times now. So the, the wage distribution in the labor market is much, much wider um, than it was before. Part of this is because of education expansion. There's more graduates at the top who earn a lot more. Uh, but that's not the only part of the story in terms of what's going on. Okay, so both labor market, increased labor market inequality and increased educational inequality are issues to do with why, um, why social mobility is pretty low and has actually probably been falling. It certainly hasn't improved at all over this time period that we're looking at in Britain. Lots more people are stuck at the bottom ends of the distribution relative to where their parents were. Uh, yeah, whoever, whoever's there, uh, yeah. the working classes, but when, when you're looking at the income distribution, have you broken that down into what class those people came from? Because it yeah, makes you, sense that you got a higher reward for getting a degree if you were from, a mid, from a, an upper middle class family, because there are other variables that yeah, need to be taken that, into yeah, account. Yeah, you can do that, and you can, can, you can control for them as well, and see how much they explain. You still get a very big rise in inequality, even when you control for those, for those factors. There is, there is a variation in that, actually. It's not perhaps as disparate on the earnings <laughs> as you might think. The returns go up a little bit more for people from richer backgrounds, but not massively more over, over, over time. But we can talk about that a bit more later on if you want. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's sort of happened is that the, these, these trends, I think, have been exacerbated by more recent patterns of change in the last 10, 15 years. And there's been various fractures in terms of economic, social, and political dimensions as well. So here's a couple of interesting examples, I think, uh, which show, um, show this chart shows you uh, across about 300 uh, uh, local authorities. Each dot is a local authority in England. Uh, it shows you we weekly wages... Uh, in 2015 prices um, and it shows you social mobility from, in, in those areas from the social mobility commission's index of social mobility by local authority from the places that have low social mobility up to high social mobility and you can see that wages are much lower uh, here as real wages have fallen since the global financial crisis this has been exacerbated and so you can see actually uh, people earn a lot more in the places where social mobility is higher that may, may speak a little bit to the question that was just asked and over here. And of course, if you want to look at the uh, percentage who vote leave uh, or voted leave in the EU referendum, uh, you can see there's a, a very strong relationship which, go, which goes the other way. So in places where social mobility is low, uh, the probability of voting leave is very much higher than it is in places where social mobility um, 
is higher. Uh, okay. So there are obviously broader consequences than just the economic outcomes for the people concerned uh, in these sorts of issues. Okay, so what should we do about this? Um, so in our book, we, we discussed various things, but we kind of discussed a large menu of issues you might think about, uh, including some of the things that I'm being quite critical of on the top here. Uh, these are really, really seismic changes. They're really big changes you're seeing here. So just tinkering around with little things, especially tinkering around with little things in the education system, clearly isn't going to combat these very big changes that, that we've seen. So one thing that we're sort of interested in is, you know, if we are interested in, in, in reducing intergenerational persistence, uh, there's a dynamic associated with this as well. Um, and so failure to make change now is actually only storing up more problems uh, for the future across generations. Uh, there's work that shows that actually the economic and social status persists across more than one generation. Uh, there's evidence of multi-generational immobility um, as well. So what we've done here, and this is what we're going to want you to vote on afterwards, uh, is we've been trying to think a bit more broadly about this, about bigger principles, uh, about how one might try and think about tackling social mobility and social justice problems. Uh, so we've, uh, in a, I don't know if it's a catchy way or a cliched way, we've called them the ABCD of, um, of, uh, so, of, of, of social mobility principles. Uh, so here they are. A um, is about admissions uh, reform. So we know there's very, very unequal access to all forms of schooling um, that, people, uh, uh, that people enter in, from, be it preschool, be it primary school, be it secondary school, uh, be it going into post-compulsory uh, 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 school-leaving age schooling and, and university and into university as well. Um, and there's various people who are equipped, very much equipped uh, for uh, dealing with this, uh, especially from people from richer backgrounds. Uh, so we're actually interested in the idea about whether one would want lotteries. Uh, when there's a tie between people, uh, rather than letting people in who've got, just got more privilege uh, and by measure of uh, economic and social status of parents, uh, the idea about having lotteries for school admissions, indeed for university admissions, uh, is something we think would actually be quite an interesting uh, thing, but more, or to produce a much fairer outcome uh, than what we currently have. Um, the second uh, area, we, we, the B, is um, behaviour. Uh, we, we had to be creative to get these ABCDs here. Um, <laughs> but we've, we've titled it from me culture to we culture. Um, so, of course, the, the idea about inequality, there's a very underpinning mechanism that's been studied heavily by sociologists. Uh, some economists, some behavioural economists have also looked at things uh, about the idea about winner-take-all societies uh, buying into the American dream. Uh, it seems like Britain's bought into all those things, uh, be it in terms of social media, be it in terms of reality TV programs on TV, la di da di da di da um, So we think actually for reforming behaviour, uh, perhaps to have a more collective uh, notion of, um, of, of what, what should be done, as in, for example, the Scandinavian countries, uh, where there's much more of a degree of, um, of uh, putting society before yourself. Uh, Lee likes to write, write about the law of Yante, uh, which is actually a, a Scandinavian uh, law that you should put others, a, others ahead of the individual, not boast about your own accomplishments or be jealous of others. C is community. Uh, I've just shown you some local correlates of social mobility. There's wide dispersion of social mobility patterns ac across, across local areas. Uh, you can pinpoint some markers, uh, certainly places where uh, the cumulative shock of losing manufacturing jobs, of real wages not growing, uh, of coastal cities that have become, become very left behind, 
Ironically, when many of the children who did better at school left and never went back, uh, and, and then so on, left, be, left behind kinds of, uh, kinds of places. And it's not really a case of North versus South here. Uh, you know where we're sitting here. This is a case of London versus the rest. Uh, uh, there are pockets of places, but this is a case of London versus the rest. And so I think it's kind of interesting that we might want to think about uh, uh, how one might uh, reform communities. Uh, so Robert Putnam's famous book about bowling alone in the U.S., where you know people used to go temping bowling as after work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But now, if anybody wants to do that, go bowling alone. There's no community spirit left, um, and so on. I think is very important. Uh, and then the other point would be. Uh, it's not just, I mean, I mean, you can see here we're not just talking about education. Much of the social mobility debate just talks about education. Uh, it's, it's not really what it's all about at all. It, education is obviously important, uh, but there's other things. Decent work, uh, the need for skills, uh, which is education, uh, to pay the bills, to quote the Beastie Boys, um, is, uh, is, is important, especially in, this, in, especially in the... Um, in, in the uh, in the light of the way in which the labour market is becoming increasingly casualised, uh, gig economy work, many more people working in solo self-employment jobs uh, without social protection, not being covered by minimum wage, not having pension, not having sick pay entitlement, and, and so on. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, so I, I, this is one of my research areas about the changing nature of work. It's sort of interesting that countries like Britain and America uh, now, uh, I don't think anybody would have believed this 20 years ago, are now seemingly having an informal sector uh, where people are doing jobs where they're not covered by um, any, any form of workers' rights, any forms of, of <coughs> employment legislation, uh, rather like what goes on in developing countries, uh, where, where, where there's, a, there's a formal sector and an informal sector. Uh, uh, it, and, and, and so I think it's actually very, very important to go for decent work. Okay, so that's what we're going to discuss. That's the things you're going to vote on uh, at the end of the uh, discussion, so we're going to leave this up here. Uh, and it'll be to vote for A, B, C, D, what are they? Admissions, behaviour, community, and decent work. Uh, and so now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back over there, and we're going to uh, hand over to Sanchez, who, who will interview. Well, thank, thanks very much. <laughs> Great. I just want to pick up on a couple of things that you said when you were outlining social mobility. And one, it's the first question, and when I was studying in America, I had a journalism professor who said, there are no stupid questions, so here is the first question. Why does it matter? Well, I mean, it, it, I mean, it matters in a number of dimensions, I think. Um, I mean, I've already shown you how it correlates with observable measures like inequality. Uh, and if we have some preference for a particular level of inequality, in society. I think many people now would think that inequality is too high, and of course it matters on that dimension. Uh, and enabling people to reflect their abilities to move up the distribution rather than being constrained um, in some way by that uh, would seem to be a quite an important feature. I, I, mean, I mean, another reason, though, actually, of course, if you are holding people back who are highly able people, then actually that is bad for the economy. That's bad for growth. It's bad for, bad for economic performance. I mean, performance. can you put a cost to it? Yeah, I mean, yes, I mean, I think, I think you can. I think you can say, you can, as we would say in the, uh, in the kind of, uh, when we do, uh, uh, e when we build economic models, uh, we could define a counterfactual, a different outcome, uh, where if people did reveal their potential and they moved to a different point in the income distribution, we could say how much that could contribute to growth. 
And you could say how much of growth is being lost, and of course you can put a monetary value on that per person um, in the economy. So it is really important, and Lee, I know because I've been talking to you about it for more than 10 years that you think it's really important. You've got a particular reason for caring so much about it, haven't you? Yes. Um, I tend to talk about my personal story a lot, and uh, my, 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 my friends always say the story gets bigger with every, every time I tell it, but um, I do think it's important uh, uh, that, that this is a, an issue about people, right? It's about... And Steve's laid out all the data, but you know, ultimately, um, I guess what we're both interested in is that background shouldn't determine what you do in life, whatever that is. Um, and I think one of the problems of the debate um, that we've found is that there is sometimes presumptions about what is success in life. We might get back to that. And so we're very careful in saying background shouldn't determine what you do, whatever you do. That might be going to university, it might not. Okay, so I just put that out there for a start. Um, but yeah, no, so my, my background is that I'm, I'm from a, um, a place in, in West London. Um, and it's famous for its uh, young offenders uh, institution. I think they don't call it a prison, they call it an institution. And um, I didn't go there, but I, I escaped uh, uh, from, from that, that place. And I, uh, my mum and dad split up. I stopped going to lessons at school. So I got my own sort of personal story. And then some teachers helped me. I went back to school, college, et cetera, et cetera. And now I'm a professor. Um, so, so I do use that story. And the reason I use that is because I think people need to know the data, but they also need to understand that this affects people's lives. And I think a couple of things I'd add to what Steve said from a personal perspective is, you know, education for me was a big transformative factor in my life. But what I find depressing when we look at all the data, and we Steve mentioned the arms race, is that increasingly it's become a vehicle through which the middle classes um, retain their position in society. So I think it can help individuals, but what we find is that, that, that you know, it's been appropriated in a, in a sense by the middle classes. Um, and the other thing I'd say, and added to what Steve said just from a personal story side, is you know, a lot of people and a lot of stories uh, that I've written about we tend to talk about individual success. And when I look about, back to my life, to be honest, it, it's lots of people help me at various times. And I think, I think we tend to forget that as well. So it's to, to what we were talking about, you know, collectivism, if you like. And totally agree with Steve on, on that. I think we are, we've, we've bought into the American dream which is a very individual notion of success. You know, you, you find someone, you pluck them out, and they, 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 they become a success. Um, and I worry about, it's great for those individuals, it's, but what about the people that are left behind, right? What about, about those that might not be so academic? Um, so I think that is a really interesting um, debate within this as well, individual versus collective uh, sort mm. of success. And looking at that, the stickiness, the fact that things, as you pointed out, haven't been getting any better, when you think about the prospect for, for this generation, for their children in this country, what do they look like? So, so, one, so one thing, I, of course, I didn't have time to talk about and present in more detail, is, is if you think about... So the, the, I think the, the falling pattern of absolute uh, intergenerational mobility is really striking. And, of course, what it's driven by is real wages falling. And so, therefore, people aren't entering the labour market at the same levels as people were uh, 10, 20 years ago. Um, and so, of course, that's affecting young people a lot more. So young people have actually experienced much bigger falls in real wages since the mid-2000s 
um, than older people and so the millennials are kind of losing out uh, in many dimensions so actually one so you can actually think about intergenerational mobility in, in, in terms of many outcomes so as economists we tend to look at income uh, earnings in, in work and education and if we can ever get data on it wealth but it's much harder to get to, to, harder to get data on wealth uh, but one measure you can get is the probability that you uh, own your own house which of course has been a big deal in Britain about people uh, wanting to own, own their own house so that's very 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 sticky so we're probably and it's got much worse over time um, so the probability that you are an owner occupier uh, if your parents were uh, is much higher now um, than it was before and of course that's partly reflecting the fact that the house prices went up uh, by so much and therefore that some young people who come from a family who didn't own their house when they, were, when they were growing up just can't get on the property ladder at all uh, and then we've got the double whammy uh, with earnings stagnating and falling uh, and this is driving a big inequality uh, between people uh, you know the bank of mum and dad has been referred to by the resolution foundation in, in their work on, on, on this issue and so the bank despite house prices going up if parents did also experience uh, capital, uh, housing gain, equity gain, housing equity gains from house prices going up. And of course, they can give money to their kids and then mm, to get mm. them into the housing ladder. So they just kind and of so, capture And, and so, so it's actually true, but mm. so, so if you look at, um, at owner occupation mobility, uh, that falls a lot more than the earnings mobility uh, patterns I showed you before. I mean, you can look at a lot of the different economic and social outcomes, and they do have, most of them would show. Uh, that mobility had a step change down and hasn't really improved. Um, so, so it's continuing to be bad rather than get worse. Yeah, there's been no bounce. There's been no bounce back. I mean, it, I mean, I think it's probably fairly flat since that episode, driven by the 1980s, early 1990s inequality increase. But it, but that's it's sort of taken a step down and then stayed stay down at lower levels. The absolute mobility, Steve, we would say is you were showing that the the average wages are falling right so it's a so it's a, essentially we're, we're in a zero-sum game at best right well when, when absolute mobility is falling yeah and and and, it, and, these, the, and these defects probably do tend to swamp the relative mobility because one, one thing i'm just going to add to that so, it, so i do think we're entering into a new debate uh, in social mobility and i find myself sort of up against uh, often people representing the more privileged side of society um, because, you know, in a world where there was a sort of boom in social... People talk about the post-war boom in, in opportunities, at least, not relative mobility. Uh, but now we're entering an era where there's only so many places, right? There's only so many university places. There's only so many jobs. And I think the, those at the higher end of the ladder are worried about downward mobility in a way that uh, maybe weren't before. And I think when we, when we have these discussions, we talk a lot about the chances of upward mobility. You know, how can you get someone to have the right skills or to move up? We talk less, and it's something I think Steve and I want to explore more, is how do you promote downward mobility? And it's something wants to go and down, it, obviously. Exactly. And it's funny, in all the political uh, the manifestos have been published, but I suspect there'll be nothing about downward mobility in, in any of the parties. Mm. Uh, because it's difficult, right? Because, because parents want to do the best for their children, um, and I, I think we need to sort of... And some of the, the, the principles that Steve put up, I think, could... Um, 
look at that. I mean, we talk about randomization of emissions, for mm. example. One of the reasons we came to that was because we found that essentially uh, lots of parents cheat now you know so um, whether it's renting a place near near the the um, school whether it's you know making up uh, medical conditions to get in I mean I've, there are so many ways now that and I think that we we felt that the only way now you can level the playing field is to, to, to think more radically well that's what one of the things you suggest but also for a very very long time people have assumed that education can be the motor of social mobility and if you get education right then everything else will follow but we have spent an awful lot of time the Blair government put an awful lot of money into schools expanding schools improving education something this government says it wants to do as well but it hasn't really had the desired effect has it there hasn't been that transformation at all. There has been some successes, and we look at this in the book. So if you look at the proportion of young people that have gone to university, the proportion of disadvantaged bachelor has gone up. Mm. The, the issue is, and this is the classic arms race, is that the proportion from higher income bachelors has gone up even more. Mm. So every time you offer an educational opportunity, it, it gets exploited by those from better off backgrounds. So, and then you've seen the boom as, as the Sutton Trust has documented, in private tutoring outside school. So um, I, th- I think parents are investing, and particularly those with, with the money to do so, are investing more in education than ever before. And that's a worry, because if you do come, happen to come from a family who doesn't have that resource, you're left behind. So I, I think that's probably getting more uh, difficult now. One of the other things, of course, is that the Labour, government, the Labour Party sorry, have said that they think social mobility has run its course, that it isn't a way forward, and actually we should be talking about social justice, we should be talking about improving the opportunities for everybody, rather than this model where you seek to climb all the time to do better. Yeah, I mean, the whole reason why we, we connect social mobility to inequality is for exact reason, because it's totally entwined with social justice, or social injustice reasons as well. And that's why the word fairness was mentioned at various times. That's why we're talking about collectivism. I, I mean, I think it's just a, a reaction. It's just a language, a use of language there. And mo- social mobility sounds like it's some, um, I don't know... Well, social mobility is climbing a ladder. Yeah, some sort of. Yeah, yeah, but but I think just Mm. it sounds like some liberal kind of thing, and therefore it's no good. It has to be social justice. They're completely entwined, Uh, and and you know, and we 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 use the words a lot together uh, in Mm. in in terms of what what we write. Yeah, I mean, the thing I'd add to that, I I do think you need both because you know. Okay, if you're thinking of social mobility in a narrow sense of get, getting young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the elite, you know, that's mm. the, um, I do think you need to do that because I do think it's a scandal that, that our elites are incredibly, uh, you know, uh, from very elite, elite backgrounds. All the studies suggest that. You know, so if you don't, in my view, if you don't diversify the elites, you don't get into these bigger issues about how you fund further education colleges or, you know, on average, I mean, I don't know what Steve thinks about it, but I, I, I think if you don't have a, a cabinet, for example, that's more reflective of society, and actually the government advisors, is another, you know, if you don't have that, that understand people in different communities around the country, then I think you don't come up with as good, poli- as good polities for, for the people they're meant to serve by. You touched on the geographical variation when you had your, your graphs about income and also about Brexit voting. But when you look at particular regions of the country or even 
down to county or town level, do you find that there's a big variation between towns when it comes to social mobility in smaller areas? Yeah, I mean, I mean this goes right down to small, small spatial units. Uh, I mean, it, it, it sort of depends how you, you want to define it. So, of course, I did also say that London versus the West is a, is, is a, is a critical thing, and it is. You know, that's a big disparity across broad mm-hmm. areas. But also when you go down to very... Uh, localized areas, local communities within within cities, within towns, uh, both rural areas and urban areas. Um, there's a big disparity uh, in terms of the social mobility measures you can you can construct. So the measure is an index that I, I, I put up there, which is a kind of amalgam of various different um, different uh, different measures of economic education status, uh, say the proportion getting five or more. Uh, a start to CGCSEs, uh, crime rates, uh, various other different things that you can measure, unemployment rates, uh, various other things you can measure at, at local level. And of course, different different places have different weights on those on, on those factors. Uh, but you know, there's broad disparity uh, in, in 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 terms of in terms of what's going on. The the patterns of uh, real wage stagnation, uh, and indeed falling real wages for some demographic groups. Uh, that's occurred. That's, that has a very big spatial um, dimension to it. Inequality rising, uh, it's, it's the same thing. I mean, if you look at Raj Chetty's work in the US about the, um, uh, uh, where, where is the land of opportunity, where he, he goes right down to even census tract levels in, in, in US places. So he shows San Jose has loads of uh, upward uh, social mobility. He shows Baltimore doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very, but very, very big gaps um, in, ter- in terms of uh, in terms of what's going by place, so I mean, it, you know, it's, it, it, that's why we put communities down as one of the uh, one of the facts. I mean, I, I would say that, of course, those ABCDs are not or not independent of one another. They're not mutually exclusive. Of course, some mm. factors do cross over cross mm. over all of them. Yeah, but we have uh, said people but, can uh, only vote for one. I think. Yeah, but you yeah. have to you have to kind of decide what you think would be the most. I, I think we think it would be the best for improving, mm. or have the best potential to improve. Um, social mobility. Of course, that would require a design of uh, particular policies in most places. It would involve spending money, for sure, in, in some of those places. And, of course, what you would spend the money on needs to be extremely carefully, carefully thought about. The collectivism thing could involve, uh, dare I say it, raising income taxes. Uh, uh, in, uh, you know, income taxes are far lower than they are in Scandinavian countries. And, you know, it's no, no coincidence. Inheritance taxes are... Uh, another, another lever you could think of. It's not because there aren't levers you can use. It's because people don't want to do it. Uh, and, and, you know, and as I say, that's why we end up with a situation where we just have people suggesting tinkering around with little things, usually in the education system, not only in the education system, and not actually ever advancing the kind of big changes that you would need to, to do this. And as I say, these could be good for economic growth. This is, this is the irony of it. Things that cost a lot, uh, if you actually get bigger benefits from them, mm. actually can, well, can be better for everybody. That can be better for everybody. Of how you frame it as yeah. well, how you measure it, what kind of time frame you use. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, if you know the idea. I mean, Lee was saying about the individualistic notion. Of course, the whole idea that you perpetually cut income taxes and corporate taxes uh, is embodied on that individual idea. It's, it's not helping. Uh, Groups other than the individuals who, but I, and I would add, Steve, you know, you, you should, in my view, pay people more that do jobs for public good. You know, I, I would put that under 
you know, be, be, you know those that contribute to society, teachers, for example. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I mean one, of, one of the articles we wrote after the book, we wrote for the big issue, and that's exactly what we wrote about, about paying people for decent work. Uh, I, mean, I mean, people who are doing really quite difficult jobs, and people, you know, if, if you look at the... Uh, the regular data sources that come out uh, and report earnings, wages uh, in, in, in the labour market each year, and you rank them from the lowest paid occupations to the highest paid occupations. The lowest paid occupation, it's usually a fight between um, care assistants, uh, people looking after uh, people in residential care homes, and hairdressers. Uh, but typically the care assistants win the lowest paid price. Um, but, you know, I mean... Those people are doing a really, really important job. I mean, I don't think most people in the room would want to do that. I mean, I hope we've got some care assistance here. That would be great. Uh, but, you know, people need to be paid much more for those doing those responsible jobs. And I'm afraid, you know, people who are pressing a button selling shares in the city just because there's loads of money flying, floating around behind that. Um, that doesn't seem like the right way to do it. Can I just take you, because I know I want to leave some time for questions, and it would be great if we can just run through with a, li a little bit more detail what your four options are. So if we start with admissions, you want to, you're suggesting creating a lottery system to stop parents gaming the system, so by renting properties near the really good schools, this kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, if we hadn't done the ABCD bit, uh, it would probably be fairness, I think, probably would have been could that. Could have been bit, access. Yeah. Uh, could have could been, been access. access. Steve's <laughs> obsessed with this ABCD. Um, but I, I, I think the fairness... I would broaden it out because I actually do think we should offer lower grades to young people from uh, disadvantaged background going to universities like LSE, you know. Um, and, so, and so just to start with the school, so for a school... Okay you'd have a lottery. So rather than well, having not, to move next not door pure, to the school... Not a pure lottery. What we say is... Oversubscription. Yeah. So if you've got an oversubscribed school and you've got a number of children who all live in the vicinity of that school, we think the fairest way is to have a ballot. Some state schools do this already. Um, Politicians do find that a hard concept, but we, we, you know, that is the fairest, by definition, the fairest way. No one, no one can rig the game, um, and, and, that, and that's why we. Can, and, and we felt the same could be true for universities. Um, I mean, this, you know, remember this—that's just one route. And, and, and in the book, we do talk about other routes, and you, can, you know, there's much more to be done in a way for the half of people that don't go to university. But for those that are trying to get into those, we, we, we believed a, a random allocation would be the fairest way. But they would have to get certain grades, presumably. Yes, yes. So, so you know, universities... Uh, I'm going to have to be careful which universities I say here, but, but you know, it's already a lottery, to be frank, it, for, for many of the sort of really highly selective universities. Um, you know, who, you know, there's so many young people coming out of school with three A-star grades now um, that... You know, you, to be frank, you come up with some criteria that enables you to select. But most of those people would, would be successful in that institution. So, um, yes, it's, it, it, it's a lottery with a threshold. Yes. Um, and that, So you would just take the very top students, or would you have a bit of a mixed bag to give students from... So that's a good question. I mean, I think the design... The top universities. Yeah. So the design of this would have to think... So some people have said to me, it's all very fine, but what happens if you do a lottery and you get... A uh, hundred Etonians, right? You could get so. Uh, so I think you, you, you know, in in Holland, in the Dutch medical schools model, they have a weighted lottery, so you get essentially more of a chance if you're, you you get the grades, but you're also from a disadvantaged background. So I think you'd you'd have to think how you design design the lottery. It wouldn't be a pure lottery. 
And Steve, can I ask you about B, behaviour? What does that mean from the me culture to the we culture? How do you change that? I, I mean, I, I referred to some, some potential policy levers before about tax policy and evidence taxes, income taxes. Uh, but there's also a dimension about collective spirit, about people feeling things. I mean, of course, you may say, may say that could also be a community dimension, which it is, about people feeling mm. proud of their communities. And uh, we've sort of lost a lot of that as, as we've had uh, the individualistic no notions um, pulling through more. Um, I mean, ironically, again, the education system, may, may, the expansion of HE, uh, may have actually been counterproductive to that kind of notion, as I mentioned briefly in the talk, about people leaving places and then, and then not, not going back. Uh, and, and actually, because largely the, the opportunities to go back are not there. Mm. Uh, I mean, that could have been countered properly with, with probably... Um, so you're kind areas, of blurring areas. into your C now, because you were talking about behaviour, and now you're talking we're blur, about We're blurring community. into C as well. I mean, they're obviously closely related. I mean, of course, communities are made up of individuals, uh, and so if a community is or perhaps should be a collective group of individuals, uh, although some people, you know, may not partake in that. So, so behaviour is about higher taxes and it's about encouraging people to think about the greater good and the community one is more about investing in towns and cities which both the Labour and Conservative parties are saying they want to do by the way you know, yeah. before the election with the my town policy and yeah. now the Labour policy announced today yeah, and the, so, high, the high street stuff yeah. Yeah, you know, no it's true uh, and which, which are probably good things. They don't seem to be particularly well designed so far. I mean, there is quite a lot of evidence out there about when place-based policies do and do not work. My colleague Henry Overman is a real expert on this. His What Works Centre for Local Economic Growth has uh, been pushing this for a long time. Um, but, uh, I mean, you know, again, but again, the idea about would you entertain place-based policies, would you try to design things so that graduates would move to, to jobs mm. in places that they currently wouldn't move to? It's not just about people there, it's about mobility, in, in, um, place-based mobility um, as well. And sh surely more thought rather than just the idea about just saying we're going to throw some money at it, more specific kind of um, aims about how you would do that and design it and evaluate them properly to see what, what works and what doesn't work, which, of course, short-termist government policies rarely do. Uh, it strikes me as very important. I think the only thing I'd add to that, essentially, is that there's, there's a real issue in, t in terms of getting good teachers to go to areas of the country they're needed most, and I, and I think we're still struggling with that. Actually, I, I, you know, when we did the book, what we found was like San Jose and, and London, in fact, there seemed to be this sort of magic mix of it was about stuff happening outside the education system, i.e. jobs and opportunities, and it was good schools. And it was when you get that mix that, that, that you seem to get this kind of, mm. uh, as you'd expect. I, I think so any policy for different parts of the country, and I think it's an absolutely urgent policy. I, you know, I think London, I'm from London, I love London, but I think we should have far more jobs, opportunities outside London. I mean, you know, we need to think about where we put our government departments, etc., etc. Mm. Um, but I think you need both. You need good education in, in a context of, of, of good jobs as but well. government departments have been moved out of London, of course. Some, the Labour yeah. government did move some departments out of London, and to some degree, you know, you had a bit of a boost. The BBC has moved a lot of operations to Salford. That's been great. A lot of companies have followed. Mm. You know, it does work, but, but it'd be quite hard, wouldn't it, to do that on a massive scale? 
I don't know. I, I, I think you could do far more. I mean, one of the um, interesting things about social is you do that, but then all the, the glamorous um, BBC people stay down in London, of course, isn't it? <laughs> um, and you, and you, find, you find this when you do try and do these things, these reforms, actually, um, you know, in, in the workplace, when you try and diversify the workplace, it, it, it's, it's those parts of the business that are less interesting that become more diverse. And the, you know, the, those, so, so um, it, it is a challenge. But I think we could do more. Just very quickly, the last one. Decent jobs. So this is, so this is really uh, Steve's uh, an expert in this area, but I, I think we both you know, felt that, um, you know, one, it's, it's about decent jobs, and Steve's spoken about the rights of, of people, and, the, and I think progress is the other thing that, I, that, came, that came across from a lot of the research papers, you know, having a sort of um, a ladder, if you like, in the work. So, so, so when you go to university, in the way, there's, a, there's this kind of royal route, you know, you know exactly what you're going to do when, and I think a lot of these um, jobs that, that, that Steve's done lots of work on, it seemed to me that they're, they're almost dead-end, literally dead-end jobs. Um, but I don't know if you want to say any more, more on that, Steve, but that, that's, that's how it comes across. Yeah, I, I mean, um, of course, it's really good that employment is at record levels right now. And the employment rate is both in terms of total employment and in terms of the employment rate. But actually, if you actually start delving a bit into a bit more deeply into what's been happening over time, almost all of the jobs that have been created um, since the global financial crisis, uh, the vast majority have been um, people moving into uh, solo self-employment positions. Uh, actually, so self-employment, but not the entrepreneurial type of self-employment that many people think of where you have workers. Uh, the vast majority are actually just self-employed individuals, mm. uh, some of whom clearly want to go there and do that, and the gig economy and the new forms of atypical work arrangements are actually good for that. And so there's clearly a trade-off between those sorts of positions offering flexibility on the one hand, which is good for some independent contractors, but also... Uh, uh, sizable fraction of those positions appear to be fairly dead-end jobs mm. uh, where people are earning less than the minimum wage, they're not getting any pay progression at all. I mentioned before that the real wages of young people fall more than the average uh, real, wages of, um, real wages of a typical worker, the median worker. Uh, if you actually look at the uh, earnings of the self-employed, uh, the solo self-employed, um, in the period where real wages fell, uh, they fell by even more. Mm. So, so a decent work, your D, is going to be a proper job, a, a full-time job, which uh, where somebody would get pension rights and sick pay and holiday pay and the possibility of training and progression, an old-fashioned yeah. kind of thing. The other thing I'd add to this, actually, which is an important bit, Steve, yeah. just to, to get this yeah, in. Um, yeah, it's I about mean, decent education as well, Steve. I mean, the, you know, the, so we looked into... Yeah. You know, one of the biggest scandals, I think, is the fact that we found 20% of young, young adults do, do not have basic numeracy or literacy. And I think we, we haven't addressed that. We haven't addressed that for decades. Um, I think it's, it, it, is a, it is a scandal. And, and I think we need, we need some sort of basic threshold that all children are expected to pass. We don't have that at the moment. And I think that ties in with this notion of having a decent education and a decent job. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's only two kind of, So the OECD does this uh, PIAC survey, uh, the Programme for International Adult Competencies. Um, and 26 countries were in that in 2012. And so if you looked at the proportion of people who, by their definition, are uh, functionally illiterate or functionally innumerate, it's not only quite a lot higher um, in, in... Actually, Britain's not quite... Not, 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 not the worst. 
Uh, but Britain and America are still quite high up. But the most important, the most interesting thing, this is a survey of 16 to 65 year olds. And so in Britain and America, uh, the 16 to 24 year olds have exactly the same uh, rates of uh, functional illiteracy and innumeracy as the uh, uh, 46 to 65 year olds. So people who went through the education system many, many years before. The other 24 countries improve over mm -hmm. time. And, mm -hmm. and so it's much, much lower amongst the 16 to 25 year olds um, in, in, in the other uh, 24 countries. And of course the, the significance for the older people is they could probably have got a job even if they're... In, 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 perhaps in the old days, yeah, when we got golden age yeah. and so on, yeah. Mm. Um, but, I could, but so the education system is clearly letting these people down. I mean, mm. this is, you know, this is just... People are not... You know, some of the questions that define functional innumeracy are questions like if you go to a shop and buy, I don't know, the bar of chocolate or something, and you pay 28p, how much change do you get from that? Mm. And 20% of people don't get that right. Uh, kind of. So it's pretty, it's pretty serious stuff, and you know, in the education system is clearly not delivering, and it's clearly letting people down. Uh, but of course, you know, the, the whole segregation of people because of the whole issue about people moving into places and bumping house prices up to to get to get, to get into uh, particular schools ends up with a segregated group of individuals in one school compared to another. Uh, and, that, and, of course, the lotteries could alleviate, alleviate some of those kinds of issues. But, but also a lot of that is very localised. It's very, you know, yeah. you see certain towns where the level is really low. Sure. Um, and London was always supposed to be the example where you had, you know, excellent schools and terrible schools alongside. You know, um, but London schools have come up and improved. But for example, but Knowlesley has no sixth forms. So if, if you actually want to, once you reach a compulsory school leaving age, Knowlesley in Liverpool, uh, if you actually want to go to sixth form, you, there isn't a school you can go to. Mm. You've got to go somewhere else. You've got to go outside of Knowlesley. Um, you know, and so, obviously, <laughs> that doesn't seem right, does it? Yeah, and I think that we're, we're, let, let, we're open up to questions, actually, but the, the, the London thing it, it, it is a lot of that is driven by the people in London. So you have an aspirational immigrant community. You have a lot of middle-class people going to state schools. I think where we've tried to replicate that, or the government has elsewhere, it hasn't worked so well. So, you, you, you know, how much was that to do with these schools? I think there was obviously a contribution, mm. but it was also about the communities as well, the mix. You yeah, had. no, certainly there was an energy that the immigration wave yeah. brought with it. Now, I think we should open it up to questions because we've been talking for an hour, really. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> yes. So, who's got the mic? You've got the mic. Excellent. So, oh, Somebody right at the front. Okay, let's start there, front in the middle. Thank you. I need to make notes of where people are. Hi. Right. So I sit on a socio-economic mobility committee for a financial services firm. So I'm one of the bus and pushers that uh, <laughs> you were commenting on before. What do you think we should be doing at a company level to try and improve socio-economic mobility? Okay. So I don't know if everybody heard that, but um, this gentleman works he's the ch you're the chair of the social mobility committee on a company on the social mobility yeah. yeah and you want to know how to improve social mobility within your company or, or, or to improve it generally by so it's, it's recruitment it's not about running projects outside your company it's about within the company Mm. 
So, so the question is, what can corporations do to promote yeah. social mobility? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it, it, it's one of the many things under behaviour, for sure. It's not, it's not just... There's various economic actors we would think of, not just individuals. Uh, I mean, if, of course, if we buy the uh, individualistic stuff, it is just individuals, but there's various economic actors we would think of. And, of course, of course companies are a critical one. Uh, the way in which, you know, from right from the top down to, to, to the bottom in, in, in terms of companies. Uh, I mean, of course, the idea about collectivism is important there as well. Uh, um, you know, I mean, we know, we know that loads of, uh, you know, if you look at the unionisation rate of, uh, in, in, in Britain, it's absolutely plummeted. You know, it peaked in 1979, about 60% of people were members of a trade union. It's right, it's, it's, it's almost in single figures now. Uh, and it's one of the biggest social science changes we've seen um, uh, in, in terms of observable measures. And nobody joins a trade nobody <coughs> Hardly any young people join a trade union anymore. Now, that may well be because they're dinosaurs and they're living in the past and they were only there for male manual manufacturing workers and never changed with the times. Uh, but that kind of voice for individuals within firms is gone. I don't know what kind of representative, representation you have for, uh, for workers within your, within your firm uh, in financial services. I know the unionisation rate in financial services in the aggregate is very, very, very low. Hardly anybody's a union member in financial services, uh, but, I don't, but I don't know what your unionisation was. I mean, I, I would just add a few things. I mean, I would, I mean, I would track people by their socioeconomic background as well as the other, other characteristics. Um, I, would, um, I would think about, uh, as Sam Friedman and colleagues here have done lots of good work in this area, um, I, would, I would think about mentoring programmes that specifically think about people from different backgrounds. So when you look at some of the studies in the corporate space, you get young people that are championed, but they tend to be from privileged background. They tend to be sort of, so, so informal sort of mentoring is, is, goes against social mobility. I think you have to be really clear with your mentoring programmes and have senior people who, as part of their job, uh, their role would be to help support young people from uh, from disadvantaged backgrounds in 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 the, in, the, in the company, and I also think you should diversify the boards at the, the top. I, you know, there's, I think there's been some gains in gen, terms of gender and ethnicity. I think we need to think also about socioeconomic background at the top. You have to have that as well. That's great. That gentleman over there. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, very interesting research. Very, very interesting research there, but. Uh, my goodness, I mean, bless you, but aren't you two really part of the problem? You're sort of one-tenth <laughs> awake. I mean, you're saying, oh, well, we don't really just mean individuals getting on and stamping on the rest. But that's what you're really still stuck in, isn't it? You, you, you know, you don't know the meaning. You talk about community, I think, under C. You don't know what a community is. A community is a group of people so, sorry, who know each other. You question? want a question? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> You took the example of an underpaid, socially useful job to be teachers. I'd like you to talk about farm workers and cleaners. Why? The, 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 the dis, would, could I put it to you? The destructive thing about their lives is not only the miserable low pay, I started off as a farm worker, by the way, but the fact that it's what you call dead end jobs. That is so insulting. 
I don't know about cleaning, but as you go through life as a farm worker, you get better and better. You don't get any more pay or status. Sorry, but what, isn't what it, you, sorry, the question, isn't the answer to raise the status and pay hmm. of working class, humble, dead end, you call it jobs, and not forever rat on about people going to university and making these rotten jobs decent by making them more skilled, when they're all very, ready, very skilled, they're just not paid and recognised. Sure. I'm sorry to be emotional, but, you. you know. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, that's, I mean, that's definitely. Of course, that's right. I mean, but I mean, to be fair, I mentioned care assistance. To be fair, I mentioned care assistance. People, people yeah, right. So care, so and care. Your worship of social mobility in itself. No, that's not. That's, that's actually not right. Um, I mean, I think you're actually. I think you're. I think you're actually. I think you're actually saying some very, very similar things to what we're trying to say. Yeah, but I'm saying uh, plainly, whereas you're all messed up. Here. <laughs> <laughs> should we? Should we? I think we should go. So, so, what, so what's the what's the idea? What's the ideology we're messed up on? I think we move no, on to I the think, next I question. Think we should move on, actually. Thank you. <laughs> question over there. Thank you. Great. So um, you've talked a lot about changes to education and improving access to education, access to better education for um, people from disadvantaged backgrounds. How effective do you think that will be if they don't get the right support at home? And what do you think needs to be put in place to support the families in making sure that they're championing their children to actually succeed in, in um, the education system that you put them into? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, you know, so, so, so one of the things that uh, the evidence looks at is, is, is the need for parenting programs. The problem is not many of them are not many of them work, you know, so we know that parents really matter, but we're still uh, trying to find what actually, and you have to be a bit careful with the presumptions you make in terms of this as well. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a really good question, and one thing I have found with schools increasingly, um, it sort of relates to this question, is, is schools are becoming... Um, uh, sort of social welfare centres increasingly as well in particular areas. So it's not just the classroom stuff they're doing. It, it's it's providing free breakfast. It, it's it's a lot of the other stuff. So I think it's very difficult actually. I don't know what you know what the policy uh, implications would be for that. I mean, I mean, most of the research. I mean, this has been around. These findings have been around for a long time. Uh, that you know the role of schools. Uh, in, in, in generating improvements for people. I mean, of course, schools can and do, uh, but the home environment is much, much more. The home and community environment is, is a much, much bigger factor. So the old school effectiveness literature that education educationists used to work on would suggest that maximum 20% of, uh, of, of, of improved education outcomes, in fact, would be accounted for by the school itself, and 80% would be other stuff. And so clearly, doing things outside is absolutely, absolutely vital. Um, and and, and uh, it's, I mean, I mean, I mean, Lee's right. It's, it's difficult to think about how to frame um, some of those questions. And I think this is something that does cross over these broad principal, principal areas as well. Not 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 least access to 
particular schools, but also about the idea about the, the, the community spirit and, dare I say it, decent work uh, um, um, as well for parents, of course, because of that, that is the intergenerational factor that, that we're looking at. Uh, and so decent, well-paid jobs, uh, but even in bar work being particularly good. And, I think, and of course, if there's career development and people are learning better, then of course that's great. Uh, that's exactly, that's exactly what we The mention of dead-end jobs is that where the career development is not in place and so somebody's not learning on the job and is getting stuck and being exploited in their job by not learning new skills uh, and, and doing better and being rewarded better. That, that's the whole point. So maybe, maybe it's the language. I, I'm still getting back to answer that question. <laughs> but I'm actually in the context of this as well. Okay. Um, but that was the point about dead-end jobs as well. Right. Uh, another question. Over there. Thank you. Mm. Your thoughts on the apprenticeship levy um, along that lines in terms of an alternative route to social mobility? The apprenticeship levy well, as an alternative route to social mobility? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it could be used in a much better way, actually. I, I, I think that there could be a sort of social mobility dimension to it. Um, how big corporations have used the levy, I'm sure you've seen, has been mixed, I'd say, at best. So I think, yeah, a reform to the the levy is the money that that companies now have to pay towards training, right? um, So... I think that whole area of the apprenticeships actually could be could be much better. Um, uh, you know, there has been. I mean, to, the government have sort of put targets in numbers of apprenticeships. I, I think I always come back to quality of apprenticeship. It has to be um, high quality, and it has to lead to p- proper progression. So, I, I, you know, I think the levy. Yes, a, a big. Um, it'd be interesting to see if there's any debate in the political parties on this. I suspect not. Uh, but yeah, no, certainly, I think. Having some sort of um, uh, that you use that money for, partic- for particularly those uh, individuals in, in the corporate that, ha- that that might need most help. What do you yeah, think? I mean, I wouldn't have much to that. I mean, I, I mean, there is the idea that. I mean, we've still got this real dual distinction between <coughs> higher education and further education, and the apprenticeship stuff fits into that, of course. And 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 what we do much less well than other countries is actually have a proper uh, FE sector. Uh, that, did, that would deliver uh, qualifications to people that would then make them compete with graduates. And indeed, some people not going to university because there would be a much better route like there is in Germany and Switzerland and Austria, uh, which, which puts people onto a particular profile straight into employers, and employers want to keep them on after they've done their apprenticeship uh, through, through a serious training program. Now, the levy could be useful for actually producing better quality apprenticeships uh, but the, there's many more problems in FE uh, in terms of who, who can education providers, the quality of them. And so, I mean, be, you know, it's not surprising. They've been so underfunded for so long uh, that redressing that balance uh, can't just be done instantaneously. But there should be a long, concerted effort to reduce the number of graduates and replace them with much better technical education. Uh, and that can only be good again for, 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 for generating better economic outcomes. That's great. Um, can we get another question? There's somebody over there who's um, that gentleman in the blue shirt with his hand right up, who's had his hand up every time. There you are. Yes, you. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I wonder mm. if you, uh, you can touch, touch upon whether the monolingualism and the, the decline of foreign languages and uh, impacts the social mobility and also whether the immigration background of a particular person you know, impacts this mobility as well. For, for, and whether if the government is able to allow young people more experience to get overseas, they might be able to pursue you know, 
opportunities there and make connections there as well. Thank you. That's great. Um, There's a very pertinent question considering Brexit because you were talking about the monolingualism and the fact that and fewer children are studying languages here and talking about the, the question of migration and also the possibility of students studying overseas and whether that could be boosted. And of course, certainly the latter and the first uh, affected by Brexit to a considerable degree, aren't they, Lee? Yeah, I mean, I, I do worry about the decline in uh, modern languages um, in, in schools. A lot of teachers, though, do say to me that, you know, they're, particularly in the in most challenging areas, are thinking about the basic English of the children, and, and, and sometimes the modern languages is, is something, you know, on top of that. So I, I do get that, um, but I do w- I worry about that. And um, personally, yes, I think that, that we should be an outward... Let's not get into this. Outward-facing nation, um, and I, I do worry that, that, that at the moment it, it feels like we're, we're becoming more... We're less uh, in, in that way but I don't know Steve you wanted to add anything else to mm. that but I, I worry about the decline yeah mm. well I was going to say exactly what Sanchez said I was going to go straight to Brexit as well and say we can only get worse on that surely uh, we're not very good to start with we're only going to get worse unless uh, something else happens and we've got loads of other questions that gentleman over there in the blazer yeah oh thank you um, I would like to ask the the two speakers why they haven't dealt with the question of wealth It seems to me that they've embarked on a circular argument whereby they're defining social mobility in terms of education and and work and then the absence of social mobility by the absence of education and work. Some years ago I met a very wise accountant in, in the West End of London and he said that in the whole of his long career he had only met a handful of people who had actually worked for their money. In almost every case, when he came across a successful man, he found that the value of his houses was going up every year by more than his income, and the value of his investments was going up every year by more than his income. That's great, thank you. And and this was actually something you wanted to talk about, because you hadn't factored in wealth assets and the role that they play because of course education has always been the route to wealth that's the idea that you get educated you earn more money and that will take you that well that's the idea and it was I I, I went to a grammar school in the 1950s and the teachers there all had degrees Mm. their degrees were very scarce and they were all as poor as church mice in many cases the six formers had cars and the teachers couldn't afford them. Lee? What are you suggesting we go back to this? Or you, you, I, 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 um, I, no, I think it's a good point on wealth, though, I, and it's something we do cover in the book, and um, it, increasingly it's a wealth divide, actually, uh, rather than an earnings divide. And, you know, I worry about London and young people in London who are, are not able to pay the rent do not have a house. I think that's a huge divide, and it's it's a generational issue as well. So there's those of us who were lucky enough to get a place in London a generation ago are okay, but if you're young in London and you don't have parents in London, I think it's really difficult now. Steve, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, it's obviously very important. Uh, I, I mean, I mean, the reason why we focus on the outcomes that we tend to focus on is there were several reasons. One of which is we've got much much better data 
on them because it's very hard to measure wealth accurately. Uh, and actually for looking at the relationship between children as adults and parents as adults, it's very, very hard to get wealth data to do that. Now, we have done some work with a wealth and assets survey. Uh, so one indicator which shows that you're obviously talking some sense. Uh, when I showed you a very 90-10 wage differential, and I said but somebody at the 90th percentile and four times as much, about four times as much now as somebody at the 10th percentile, the comparable no number for wealth is about 80. So we have about 80 times as much wealth as somebody at the 10th percentile. Now, somebody at the 10th percentile has no wealth, basically, and they may even be close to being negative these days because of the amount of people in debt. Uh, but it's a huge, it's a, it's, a, it's a much, much bigger disparity. I mean, we do talk about some of these things in the book. We do talk about um, Tom Apicotty's work um, on inequality. We do talk about the top 1% pulling away. Uh, the only trends in inequality really, big, big rises now, are really the 1% pulling away and everybody else falling back. I mean, real wages have dropped even at the 90th, 95th percentile. Um, since, the, since, since they started dipping. But the top 1% merrily goes away. It, maybe it comes back to the question here about who's, on, who's, lead, who's at the top of, top of companies and who's, who's on the boards of companies and so on as well, and the way that they're remunerated uh, and, 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 and so on as well. So we do, completely, we do completely take point. I don't think we completely missed it, though. I mean, I did say that, in the presentation I didn't, but I did say that we looked at housing, and the housing correlations have, have got even stronger over time. And so for most people, the biggest component, for most people beyond, below uh, pension age, um, the biggest component of wealth is housing. And so we have looked at stuff about housing wealth and, and changing over time, the probability of owner occupation um, changing, changing over time. So we are completely aware of that. And uh, so I, I do completely take point. We don't want to give the impression we only want to look at uh, the measures we can look at with the data. I mean, it's a, very, it's a very legitimate point. And of course, if you actually then want to think about policies, I mean, Inheritance tax comes straight on to the agenda if you want to think about redressing wealth um, imbalances across generations as well. I think we've got one quick question, then we should try and move to the vote. Shouldn't yes. We? So if that um, lady up there in the black polo neck, just there, if that's not too far away. <laughs> there are two black polo necks. So lower down, slightly lower down. That's great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I just wanted to ask you about transport because you haven't really touched on it. Um, for instance, just as a little example, where I'm from, I'm about 50 miles from Manchester and it's quicker for me to get to London than it is to go to Manchester. And obviously we all know that HS2 has been a total waste of money for anyone not in London. Um, so I just wondered in terms of social mobility how, how transport can play a part in that and what, what do you do you know, benefits it, other parts. It, it does come up in uh, the American study that Steve mentioned, the Chetty study, is, is, is looked at the factors that are associated with social mobility by place, and one of them was connectivity, um, was having travel, right? So, so London does well for that, because you can get most, any, most areas can get on the tube. Uh, so yeah, so you're absolutely right. If, if, if you want to think about social, you, I think you've got to think about policies in the whole. So you would, you would have to think about transport. Um, yeah, so I think it is a factor. Yeah, and transport, transport infrastructure is one of the issues. If you want to think about investing in places, then transport, investing in transport infrastructure is really important. Uh, getting people to work better uh, so they have more time to go home and so on and, and, and things is obviously a really important thing. So if you think about economic regeneration packages, uh, then, of course, transport infrastructure is a, is a really important dimension of that as well. That's great. I think because the voting involves texting, doesn't it? 
Yes, Helen, Helen's going Helen's to... Helen's going to um, run it. If we, could, if we have a couple of minutes left for a final question after that, would you be willing to... Yeah, yeah, we can do, do a, a, show of hands a final hands. question. Yeah, I think, I think Helen's anyway going to... Helen's going to do this, but then if people can't get on the mm. network yeah. and they haven't got a mobile phone, we can do a show, a brief yeah, show yeah, of hands we'll on the ABCD while it's going. So we should do... Yeah. Is, it, is, mm-hmm. is it ready yet? Yeah. Sorry, with, Helen, would you like to explain how people can vote? OK, so if you've got a phone and you've got Wi-Fi, <laughs> if you go to this liveboxvote.com and put in this number... And then I'm going to try and start the vote. And by the way, if this doesn't work, we'll have an old-fashioned backup solution. So we will have a vote regardless. We're going to do a show of hands as well. But we're going to set this up first, then we're going to do a show of hands. Yeah. Where's it gone? Yeah. (laughs) Right. Um, Okay, so... Is it going? Okay, everybody? Hang on, should we have a question while we're getting this set up? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, should we let's have another question while we're waiting? At that lady in the front, the green, in the green. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, she's had a hand up for both. Yeah, she has. Both of them. Both of them. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. And then, go ahead. Can I talk or? Do we want to do wait? hands as well? Well, well, let's. We, we do hands anyway. We do working. hands anyway. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I'm going to start this now. I'm going to start it now. Yeah. And it should pop up on your. Can I ask my question while we wait? Yes. Hello, can I ask my question? Well, let's do the vote first. Okay. You will have the question after. Yeah, we'll do the question after. Yeah. It's not. Yeah, okay. Is it going? Is it working, Helen? Should be. Is it working? Let's do a show of hands. Yeah, let's do. Can we? Let's have. While we're trying to make that work, let's do a show of hands anyway. Can we have. How many think that the answer is going to be admissions? Oh, yeah. Hands up for admissions. Reconnect. Okay. Three. No, you've got a few you more. You need One. to connect, reconnect on your phones. Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. You know how to do that, It's anarchy, it's chaos. Are you, are you counting, Helen, or are you just doing... Hands, you... I'm just doing this one. Do we okay, we'll do the hands. hands. We'll do the hands now. Yep. Who would vote for A? Okay. We'll... Who would vote for A? Okay, now we're doing it, yeah. Okay. Who would vote for B? Oh. Oh, okay, count them. Who would vote for C? B and C. And who would vote for D? Oh. Ooh. Ooh. So now we can now we can see how technology affects this and whether we get the same vote. But it looks like D won. Yeah. Yes. And is this <laughs> <laughs> No transferable votes either. <laughs> right, is this going? <laughs> Let's see if this works. Oh. Is it happening? I don't know. It should. Uh... Should we take a question? Do I need. Watch yeah, I think we should. We should take. Could we? You have your opportunity. Yeah. If, would I you like to ask now? a question? Thank you. Um, I want to ask a question, but also make one statement as well. Yeah. So my first statement is, I think we definitely need to redefine what we class as being successful success, successful in terms of careers and jobs, similar to your point, gentlemen over there. Um, and then my actual question is, because I'm also part of the committee, and we also, all three of us, we come mm. from Ask Manager, and, um, and we're doing a lot of work in terms of bringing students, university students, um, secondary school students into our office and kind of them showing them the different roles that's in the industry, not just 
what everyone sees as pressing the buttons and fund managers and traders, but all the different roles. My question to you guys is, do you think there's more that universities can do in terms of exposing students to different careers? For example, not just the students who are on Sandwich University on degrees, but the ones who, who just want to get through uni. So, for example, making one module where it's focused around finding all the different opportunities that you can get once you leave university. That's not necessarily connected to your, 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 your degree, if that makes sense. So are you saying that there should be much more sort of hands-on career work at 100%. Yeah. 100%. Because, for example, once I got into the industry, I learned about so many different roles that if the majority of you guys are in uni right now, you wouldn't know too much about unless you know someone who works in the industry. And for me, I think if I knew about that at university, I would have saved a number of years of my career aiming for my role I'm in right now, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, we could do far better. Uh, some of the American universities I've visited are so good at this. They see it as part of their role. Um, so I think, yeah, much better. And, and your point about success, uh, I totally agree with that. I mean, you know, one of the things about this debate is we get caught up with success being about just getting a high-earning job. Do you know what I mean? And I feel, certainly when I speak to younger people, particularly outside of London, I have to say, is people are sort of rejecting that a bit and saying, look... I want a decent job, right? Not a dead-end job, right? But I also want a life, you know? And I, I think... Um, so that's a fundamental issue, I think, that we, we have to grapple with. That, that all the stuff on TV, I find, is... is, is it, it has that sort of sense of, if only you do this, you, be, you become a successful person. A lot of the research, by the way, shows that uh, those people that do uh, are mobile, they, they pay for it in many ways, right? Personally, you know, you, so I think... Just being, I know, there's not top lawyers in here, a top lawyer isn't necessarily, you know, a successful life. In my view, it's someone who's doing a good job, who has good value, helping others, and has a life. Do you, do you know what I mean? I think, so that's a fundamental point for me. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's obviously very sensible. Um, it's, 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 also, it's also true, but I mean, with sort of these measures of persistence across generations we, we, I've been showing you, there's actually evidence from a large range of outcomes, including psychological measures of well-being and happiness and life satisfaction, which are also strongly persistent across generations. Uh, and so some of these features are also true of some of these other measures that you're, you're, you're talking about, Not, if you like, non-pecuniary um, outcomes as well. And so you know, these things do persist across some, across some families and not across, across others. Um, I'd well. just like to point out, if you can't see it already, that um, our vote is slightly different to what we thought from a show of hands. It's, it's behaviour that's won. Is that what you would have expected? What did you think would be the most? I thought, I thought, D, I, thought D, I thought D would win. I have to say, it's not a necessarily a representative <laughs> no. mix. That, that's the. That's but the this thing. may say something about the technology users in here, and so it may say that people who haven't got access to the technology definitely think D, D is really important. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do we have to? But do we? Have to be out on the dot of eight o'clock, or can we have one or two more questions? Do you think? Can we have, to can I have a follow-up question, really, really quickly. Sorry. She's been itching. To what us. are you guys actually doing as a university right now for your students, in terms of careers? What? What are you guys actually doing as a university for your students, in terms of career progression and mm. opportunities? What are your universities what are you doing, actually doing in terms of? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there is careers advice. I think, I think, as, as Lee said, I think it, it needs. I mean. I don't want to talk about specific cases, uh, given I'm in my own institution. Um, but I think much, it could be done much, much, much better than, 
than it is. And I think people's aspirations for what they would want to go on to, which I think is what you were talking about, actually, and, and not having enough information to reveal what you would actually like them to be looking back. Uh, I think that could be massive, massive, massively improved with things. I mean, if people weren't just quite so obsessed with what grades they're going to get and what's going to be in the exam as well, that would help. And, of course, fees, university fees, tuition fees do not help with, that, with that, that kind of aspect at all. They just put pressure on people to do that, and parents, therefore, have much more excessive demands because they're paying more, and so on. So I think, actually, this is not unrelated to issues about tuition fees and the way in which universities are financed as well. Yeah, I'm a big fan of degree apprenticeships. I don't know if you... Uh, I think universities could do more on that. So, I, you know, at Exeter, we do have that, but um, I sh we could do more. But degree apprenticeships, I think, are really good. That's great. I think we could have one more. This gentleman's been waiting for ages. Yep, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, good opportunities. So, um, we talked a lot about education today, and my colleague and I have actually brought like, 35 young people with us today or in the audience. Uh, so, the young people are under leadership program, uh, and they come from varied backgrounds across 20 schools, many of them facing social mobility issues. Uh, and the aim of the program is to give them access to social and cultural opportunities that they may not otherwise have when they're more academic here as well. Today that has manifested itself in having a tour of this elite university and meeting with some undergraduates to learn about the selection process so they can secure some of those elite positions that you've been talking about. So as the leaders of social mobility in the UK, what advice would you give this group of 35 young people and things that they can do so they are not limited by the problem of social mobility in the UK? So where are, they, where are you from? Redbridge, so, uh, Redbridge, yeah, great. Okay, I think that's great. I mean, I mean, I'd actually like to know what advice they might have for people like me as well, because I'm sure they have plenty of good advice for me, uh, and so I think that would be rather good. Um, but um, no, no, it's, it's really good. I hope it's useful. I hope these kind of exercises are useful, and, and uh, you know, sort of in line with this question that was asked in front about future aspirations, and I hope it helps in that regard. And so I hope what we've done here is, is useful. Um, on, that, on that level? Yeah, I mean, I know it sounds really corny, but I, I, I do think it, it is about having belief in yourself. And when, you know, over my long career, I, you know, you meet many people, and I, I, just, I just think it's having the confidence to, 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 to go for what you're interested in, have the bravery to do that. In, ever what, in whatever way you want to do. I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say university elite universities are for everyone. That's the thing. I think consider it, but don't feel that you, you, know, you have to do that, but find something that you have a passion for. And you know, one of the things I've found in life is the biggest limitations we have is ourselves often. I know, I, I know it sounds very... Uh, but honestly, I, do th I believe in that, and I, I think you know, you're, in many ways, um, yeah, aim high and, and go for it. I think that that's it's after eight o'clock, so we should probably wrap okay. it up. But thank you very much.